Well, if you would, take your Bibles and go to the book of Jude. Jude, right before Revelation. As I continue this just four-week series in this little book, the book of Jude, I continue to be uh, affirmed in my uh, the comments that I made the first week we started in that not too many people have heard the book of Jude preached. It is not a light and breezy book, is it? Our text this morning are verses 8 through 16. Jude, beginning in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd It is your blood that has bought us. It is your grace that has brought us into your fold. With you there is safety. In you there is joy. And we ask this morning that you would guard us from the deceits of sin, from the schemes of the enemy. We ask that you would give us discernment to know error from truth, Use this text from your word today, from the book of Jude, to strengthen Crossway Fellowship for your own glory. Amen. Many years ago, I I met a young lady who had been seduced by a man who claimed to be a prophet referred to in the Bible. She ran away from home with him. She became a member of his small band of so-called disciples. After a year of using her and manipulating her to fund his life, putting her into thousands of dollars worth of debt, he reduced her to a vagrant, living with him out of her car. It was out of that experience that she actually came to know Christ, became a a true believer. 
And it wasn't so long ago that I was made aware of a pastor in our area who had repeatedly used counseling relationships to seduce women in his congregation. Now, this was someone belonging to a large denomination, not some kind of uh, you know, secretive fringe cultic group. This is not just uh, a pastor who fell into having an affair, but someone who was very deliberately manipulating women. I can remember having a man visit the church one Sunday claiming to be one of the two prophets promised in Revelation chapter 10. Some of you may remember him because some of you, I believe, spoke with him following the service. Then there was the lady who dropped by the building here one one day and told me she had been enlightened and that she had been sent specifically to, uh, to show me the light. She wasn't real happy by the time she left, But these kinds of claims, they sound outlandish, don't they? But these these folks are not mentally ill. They are deluded, and they may be deluding others, but they are not what we would think of as crazy. Of course, these kinds of claims are, are obvious. They aren't subtle like the more dangerous teachings, such as, redefining the atoning work of Christ because God is a loving, nonviolent God and there's no way he could have ever slain his own son. That is false teaching. Or denying the existence of hell. Or what came to the front about 10 years ago called openness theology, which claims that God is learning, God is still changing, God is not sovereign in control, he doesn't have true omniscience, he is like us. All of these are heresies, all of these are false teachings, and they are not just academic, this is apostasy. Now, next week, I'll take just a few minutes to identify some of the most dangerous and prominent false teachings that threaten the church today. Because remember, Jude writes this letter to call us to contend for the faith. That's verse 3. The faith includes this body of truth revealed by God to the apostles who founded the church and which they passed on to be treasured and guarded by God's people, the church. But the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, includes not only propositional truth, like Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was raised on the third day. Those are propositions. That is part of the faith. Without them, there is no faith. There is no Christianity. But there is also transformational truth. These truths transform our lives. Believing the proposition, Jesus is Lord, inherently includes, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
When we contend for the faith, we are not only defending the truthfulness of certain propositions. We are defending a way of life that those truths produce. God's people must contend for the faith because the enemy constantly tries to destroy God's people by twisting, by perverting truth through false teachers. And like a good shepherd, Jude writes to sound the alarm, beware of those deceivers. Beware of those who teach as though it were true things that are contrary to the faith that you received. And so he unmasks them. He exposes them. And he shows these false teachers to be defiant, destructive, and doomed. That's how we're going to organize these verses this morning, verses 8 through 16. False teachers are defiant, destructive, and they are doomed. So first we see in verses 8 through 11, false teachers are defiant. Yet in like manner. Now pause for a second because Jude is pointing back. He is pointing back to his three examples in verses 5 through 7. And he's saying, just like those who were delivered out of Egypt and experienced all of God's blessing, were part of God's people who saw the plagues, who escaped through the Red Sea, who were delivered out of Egypt's hand, that just like them, there were some among them who truly did not believe And Jesus delivered them, and Jesus judged those who did not believe. And just like the angels who rebelled, who usurped authority that wasn't theirs, and just like Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in their sexual deviance, yet in like manner, these deceivers are in the same way defiant, They defy God. They rely on their dreams. They claim to receive divine authority from visions, from dreams, from these these mystical experiences. And so they claim revelation. They claim to bear a message. They claim to be commissioned. And it is this claim to some sort of divine connection and authority that fuels their defiance. They defile the flesh. This is a pursuit of sexual immorality. They find ways to excuse and even to promote sexual freedom. It might be an argument like, we live under grace. And we know from Jude uh, verse, verses 3 and 4 that they were twisting God's grace. And it might be an argument like, look, there's forgiveness. We live under grace. We're not under the law. You can live however you want to. They defile the flesh. They reject authority, meaning they assert their own. False teachers, and one of the signs is they will not be corrected. They don't tolerate any challenge to their views or their agendas. And Jude says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the glorious ones refers to angels, the angelic realm. 
And in this context, it means that they were boastfully rejecting angels, probably as mediators of divine law and authority, as those who really bring messages from God, as those who have brought God's revelation. They mediate those things. It may be that they were even claiming to exercise authority within the angelic realm. It is part of their defiance of God's order to elevate themselves through this uh, gross irreverence to sacred things. Jude points out that this is something that not even uh, a highly powerful angel like Michael uh, would do. He refuses to do that. And the Bible gives us glimpses sometimes of, of this angelic cosmic warfare that's going on around us. Things that we can't see, that we don't perceive. It comes up in the Bible at times. Not often, but times it does. It's kind of like the, the, the blinds are peeled back for a moment and we can see what's really going on. Remember that spiritual warfare is not just here and that primarily it is not fought on a, on a plane that we can see. Even Paul points this out in Ephesians 6 when he says, our, uh, our battle, our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, but against the, the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. That's what he's talking about. In verse 9, Jude refers to a tradition in Jewish literature in which God commissions the archangel Michael to bury Moses. And Michael, in this process, is challenged by the devil. Satan also is an angel. So you see these words then, contending, disputing, pronouncing. These are all terms that belong to an illegal argument. So the scene is something like Michael has been commissioned to bury Moses Satan shows up, the devil shows up, and begins a dispute with him over who has a legal right to Moses' body. Now, that may sound somewhat bizarre, and it is not a scriptural story. You will not find the story in the Old Testament, but the context for it is found in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, and I'll let you Write that down and look that up if you want to. But those verses tell us that that when Moses died, the Lord himself buried Moses and that nobody knew the location of his tomb. And there there are different uh, speculations as to why the Lord did this. And I won't get into all of that this morning. That's, That's chasing a pretty deep rabbit hole, okay? But, but that the uh, Deuteronomy 34 tells us the Lord did that. Jude, by using this tradition, I think, confirms its truthfulness. Even if it isn't part of Scripture, Jude, by using it, is saying that the account is not some made-up fiction. Even if it's not part of the text of Scripture. And that shouldn't bother anybody. Another example of this would be the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, when he's in Athens and he's standing before the the uh, elite intelligentsia of the city of Athens and the Areopagus, and he's testifying to the Lord and he's talking about idolatry. He says, 
In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are, uh, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul quotes some of the Greek poets. That doesn't mean they were divinely inspired and their poetry should belong in Scripture. But by grabbing that piece of literature, Paul is uh, putting it into an inspired text. So just because Paul quoted it doesn't make the poetry divine text or the poet divinely inspired. And Jude is doing the same thing. He is reaching into this tradition and he's pulling this out. And his purpose is to expose false teachers' arrogance, just how defiant they are. Even an archangel doesn't step outside of his bounds to pronounce a judgment on the devil and will only appeal to God's authority. The Lord rebuke you. But these people, Jude says, they blaspheme all they don't understand because they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What he's saying is this, is that they are moved by their own base instincts, their own desires that know nothing other than filling themselves. And their arrogance and their irreverence blinds them to truth, and thus no matter how intelligent they are, no matter how educated they are, no matter how elite their credentials might be, they are dogs trying to read books. Ever try to get a dog to read a book? They can't read. They don't have the capacity for reasoning. Jude isn't saying that they're human beings, they don't, they don't have reasoning. He's saying when it comes to spiritual things, they are so calloused and so blinded by their own arrogance, they have no capacity to understand, comprehend truth. Just like a dog can't read a book. Verse 11, woe to them. Woe to them. Look, this is not a warning. This is not a warning. This is a declaration of judgment and damnation. When Jude says, woe to them, he is saying it is too late. He is saying you are certainly destined for the horror and the misery that will overtake you. Now remember, back in verse 4, Jude said that long ago they were destined for this condemnation. In other words, by their defiance, by their willful blindness, they join a stream of rebellion against God that flows through history and that in their in their arrogance and in their irreverence, in their defiance, they take their place in God's purposes, his history, his history of redeeming mankind. They take their place in that stream of rebellion which brings about God's destruction. That's what he's saying. Woe to them. And he names three examples from that stream of rebellion, three archetypes, if you will, Cain, Balaam, 
and Korah. These are three infamous examples from the Old Testament of those who were defiant to God and faced his judgment. We know the story of Cain. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. Cain offered unacceptable sacrifices to God, and they were unacceptable because God had uh, apparently given them clear instructions because Abel offered acceptable sacrifices, Cain's younger brother. But Cain refused to. And if Jude is saying anything, any comment about Cain, it wasn't that Cain just didn't know what he was supposed to do, but that in offering his sacrifices to God, he was defying God, which is why God rejects his sacrifices, which makes Cain angry and jealous, proud and self-willed. And then Cain leaves his proper boundaries follows his animal instincts, and murders Abel. It's the first murder recorded in Scripture. Didn't take long after the fall for someone to kill someone else. This is the way of Cain. When he says they have walked the way of Cain, he's saying they have joined that stream. They are in allegiance with. They have walked the way of Cain Arrogance, the violation of boundaries. And they have, they have given themselves to Balaam's teaching, his error. The story of Balaam is found in the book of Numbers, mostly in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And some of you will remember this story where Balaam is going to curse the nation of Israel and he's riding a donkey and the donkey keeps stopping and won't go and he gets off the donkey and he beats the donkey and the donkey speaks to him and rebukes him. That's a sign because God then speaks through Balaam. And God is saying, if, if you think that you're going to say what you want to say, I'll make the point, I will speak through a jackass. I will speak through the jackass you're writing and I will speak through you, the jackass who is trying to curse my people. That's what God was saying. And Balaam, though, in response to being thwarted because he had been promised a lot of money, finds a different way to corrupt the people of Israel. He leads them into idolatry and into sexual immorality. That is Balaam's error. He lures them because of greed and treachery. So the way of Cain is this arrogance and this violation of boundaries Balaam's error is greed and treachery. The story of Korah, you can read about also in the book of Numbers. That's Numbers chapter 16. Jude just mentions these three examples. He knows that his audience knows these texts and who these people are. But Korah was a Levite. He was of the priestly clan. And he was angry because he had been passed over for a priest position. He didn't get the position of becoming a priest that he wanted. And so he organized a rebellion against Moses' leadership. And when he did so, he lured 250 other people into his rebellion. And when he, when he confronted Moses and attempted his coup, 
of Moses' authority, the earth opened up and swallowed him and his family, his clan whole. The text says that he and his family went down to Sheol, the grave, the netherworld, alive. They were buried, swallowed up alive into the grave. The 250 people who followed him were consumed by fire. That is Korah's rebellion. So perishing, and Jude says it is something that has taken place. Why? Because they have already, these false teachers have already joined this stream. They have walked the way of Cain. They have joined Balaam's error. And they have perished in Korah's rebellion, this scheming, rejecting of authority, and facing judgment. So these are three patterns, three patterns of rebellion, not just, not just examples. They are a category, a classification, this stream that flows throughout history. This is the basic character profile of a false teacher, an apostate. They are defiant and arrogant and self-deceived and face judgment. Next, Jude exposes the danger they pose to us. This is what they're really like. This is what their character is. Jude now exposes the danger to us, God's people. Beware of them because they are destructive. They are defiant and they are destructive. Now, he does this, if you look at verse 12 and then verse 13, with a series of six vivid images. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So these would have been something like our communion table. Might have been similar to our summer barbecues. That's what, they, that's what Jude's referring to when he says a love feast. The church all comes together around eating and fellowship, spending time together. They join you. They're part of it. They're sitting at the table with you. And they do this without fear. They participate in the life of the church and its fellowship, but they destroy lives. And maybe through subtle gossip, maybe by sowing division, and maybe by offering temptation. Jude says they are hidden reefs. Why are hidden reefs dangerous? Because they sink ships. Ships that are sailing through waters they think are safe hit reefs that are invisible and destroy themselves. They are hidden reefs among you. They are shepherds feeding themselves. What is a shepherd's primary responsibility? To take care of the sheep. Now, this could mean that, that uh, these false teachers are uh, working their way into positions of leadership in the church. That could be. But by luring people, by deceiving people, they are leading. And instead of caring about others, they disguise themselves as shepherds to indulge themselves. In other words, they are using other people for their own gain. They manipulate and intimidate and flatter. They do so to 
feed themselves. It may be money. It may be some other base gratification. It may be for power. But whatever it is, they are about themselves. They are also waterless clouds swept along by winds. Now, we live in a, in a region where we wish the clouds were more waterless. Okay, But remember, in the ancient Near East, water was life. Water's life here too, but we have plenty of it. They don't have plenty of it in the ancient Near East. Palestine, that region, water's hard to come by. And so when you saw clouds on the horizon, it was, woo! oh, it's going to rain. The crops are going to make it. We're going to live through this year. Judah's saying they are waterless clouds. They look like they're heavy with rain, like they are life-giving but there's nothing to them. There's no substance, and they are blown along by the winds. Again, they disguise themselves as sources of life, but they promise something they will never deliver. The winds are their own fleshly instincts that rule them. He goes on. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. This is another image of the same deceitfulness, the same emptiness, the same reckless lusts. That's what he means by uprooted. They look like they ought to be fruit-bearing trees, but if you dig down and you look, their roots aren't connected to anything. They're phonies. They're deceitful. They are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They appear romantic. They appear majestic, but they are really turbulent and reckless. And when he says that they, they uh, cast up the foam of their own shame, it means they have no sense of their shame, which is not they don't feel embarrassed, though that's also true, but that they don't have any sense of their public disgrace, that God exposes them in judgment, and they are disgraced. Lastly, they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And when we think of wandering stars, they have some literary romantic picture. But what Jude is getting at is that stars are fixed guides by which we navigate. His image is navigational. We have GPS, and we have all kinds of technology. Very few of us need the stars to get, you know, home from Safeway to, at night, okay? But he's talking about as you are moving through life and you are navigating life and you're looking for fixed points of reference, these are stars that are constantly moving. They are unreliable guides. In fact, they're dangerous. Another comparison might be a mirage in a desert. It constantly calls you, oh, here's life over here, and you go over here, and it's just dry sand, and pretty soon you're lost in the desert forever. That's wandering stars. You ought to be able to look at the positions of the stars and planets and fix a time, a season, a location. Wandering stars are treacherous, just like hidden reefs. It is this treacherous, destructive deceit that gets them utter 
darkness, which is a description of complete separation from God into suffering and terror. Now, note all of these are destructive forces. It's all destructive. They are destructive forces disguised as something else. They appear as safe seas, but they will wreck you. They appear as trustworthy shepherds, but they are using you. They appear to be clouds with life-giving rain, but they are empty and lead you on. They appear to be fruit-bearing trees when really they're disconnected and dead. They appear to be majestic waves when really they are bound to disgrace because of their recklessness. They appear to be guiding stars, trustworthy to get you from point A to point B. But really, they will deceive you into utter darkness. Really parallels Paul's words in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, when he describes false apostles in the city of Corinth. And he says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light So it is no surprise if his servants who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Now this leads Jude to his last point, which reveals, verse 14, that the false teachers are doomed. These deceivers are doomed. They are defiant, they are destructive, and in the end they are doomed. About these, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So Jude, again, cites an ancient prophecy of judgment that includes all who join this stream of rebellion. Now, we read about Enoch in the early chapters of Genesis. And it's a remarkable story because in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we're told that Enoch walked with God. He walked with God, and one day, God just took him. Enoch is is one of only a couple people in the Scriptures who never faced death, never experienced death, just took him. And the prophecy that Jude cites is taken from a work that's titled First Enoch. It was written during the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, And again, 1 Enoch is not inspired scripture, but Jude appeals to this prophecy as an accurate prediction of the judgment to come. And we know from the New Testament that it is the risen, glorified Jesus who is the one who returns with 10,000s of his holy ones, those are angels, to execute judgment. For example, you can read 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul records a very vivid picture of what it will be like when Jesus returns. And Jude repeats the word ungodly, you notice that, four times in verse 15. He is unmasking the false teacher's true allegiance. Despite the elaborate disguise of godliness, they are opposed to God and God's kingdom, and God's people, and God's glory. They are ungodly. 
And this prophetic word captures their destiny that they will be judged when Jesus returns. And his emphasis lies on the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, that is, against Christ. And I think that what Jude is talking about here is he's not talking about overt insults and these kinds of things. That would, that would never allow them to deceive God's people. But when they twist truth, when they twist God's grace, they are speaking against Christ. They are undermining him. And he elaborates on their words, on their speech in verse 16. They are grumblers. They are malcontents following their own sinful desires. So false teachers will be grumblers. They'll always be criticizing. They'll always be undermining what the church is doing, the gospel, the, the proclamation of the faith. They resist God's commands because their lusts are unsatisfied by them. Because the gospel calls us to what? Death. Death. If anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a life of self-sacrifice. That's a, that's a life of submission. False teachers are self-deceived into filling only their own lusts and their own pride and their, own, their, their self-exaltation. Those lusts are unsatisfied by the gospel. And so they grumble. They are malcontent. She goes on. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So they are self-exalting. They are master manipulators for self-gain. But they are doomed. They're doomed because the Lord returns with judgment and they are doomed by their own speech. It will indict them in the end. Now, why does Jude say it is so important for him to write this letter? Remember, he has set aside another letter that he wanted to write originally, to write this letter. This is the necessary letter. This is the letter he's been compelled to write. Why is he so adamant that really the bulk of the letter are these verses, verses 8 through 16. The other is introduction and then a kind of a conclusion that we'll look at next week. But why is he so adamant that we understand their character and their danger, that they're destructive, and we understand their future, their destiny, that they are doomed Jude wants to make sure that we are not duped. That we are not deceived into following them. Because if he does not unmask these things, if he does not expose their real character, their real motives, if he doesn't expose the real danger that they are to the people of God, despite their disguises, 
if he does not expose their destiny of judgment, Jude knows that we will tolerate them. We will get used to it. We'll tolerate it. We'll use language like acceptance and love for things that undo the faith. And I want to just give you in closing a couple of examples. You can just turn one page in your Bibles or swipe one screen, okay, to the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation begins with the Apostle John having a vision of the glorified Jesus and all of his, uh, his risen glory as Lord. And, and in chapter 1, Jesus is walking among lampstands, and each of the lampstands are churches, local churches. And Jesus is inspecting them. He's looking into them. And he's seeing what they really are, whether or not they are holding true to the gospel. He's walking among the lampstands. And it's after this that Jesus com uh, uh, commissions John to write, write down what he sees and to write seven letters to churches that are located in Asia Minor. But these churches are, again, patterns for all of Jesus' churches. Of the seven churches, two of them are commended. There are no words of condemnation. The church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. And they both are suffering and both of them are staying true to the gospel. The other five churches are, are corrected. The church of Ephesus at the very beginning is corrected for its, uh, losing its first love. And the church of Laodicea at the very end is corrected for being lukewarm, not even being true Christians, many of them. And they're self-deceived into thinking they are Christians, but they're not. But there are three other churches, and they are the ones I want you to see today. They begin these three letters in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. They are the churches of Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And I want you to see the thing that connects all three of these churches together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed idols, and practice sexual immorality. So Jesus appeals to the same example in the book of Numbers that Jude does. They are teaching these same things. Verse 15, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then he promises reward for those who overcome. That's the church of Pergamum. About the church in Thyatira, verse 18. 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. You're doing more than you were at the beginning. Your ministries have grown. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. She likes bed so much, I'll put her into a sickbed, a bed of suffering, And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to his works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And then a promise for those who overcome. Oh, this is Jesus, the carpenter. This is gentle Jesus who went to the cross. Jesus cares about his church. And to the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're busy. You look spiritual. You're doing lots of things, but you're really dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. What's that? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what Jesus is talking about. What you've received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And again, a promise to those who overcome. See a pattern? Every single one of them. False teaching, deceit, lies. Jude writes to us because he loves God and he loves God's church. It is a faithful letter to warn us, to expose, beware the deceivers. You got to know the truth. You got to keep the word. You've got to stay in the faith. That's why Jude writes. And he knows that if he does not expose them, that we are subject, we, are, we, we can end up in the same place as these other churches. So let's pray today, and let's stay on guard. Lord, you have called Crossway Fellowship together, and we take joy in that. And this is a heavy word this morning from your word. This denouncement, this woe on those who have allied themselves with false teachers, defiant ones, that they are judged 
But Lord, it is a warning to us to know their destiny, to know they will destroy us, that we, our eternity will look like theirs if we, if we fall into their falsehoods. And so again, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would guard us, that you would grant us discernment, that you would keep us in the faith. Lord, there's a right and healthy fear for us to have. And Lord, you call us to courage. You call us to trust you. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to do that. And we commit ourselves to you. Lord, be pleased with our worship this morning our taking of communion. In your name we ask all of these things. Amen.